dead. You're listening to the news on RTHK. For the last three to five years. Foreign financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Thursday's Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Janet Yellen sends U.S. stocks and bonds into a tailspin. Shanghai and Hong Kong shares continue their slide into a second day and oil tops $69 a barrel in New York trading. I guess I would highlight that equity market valuations at this point generally are quite high. Now, they're not so high when you compare uh, the returns on equities to the returns on safe assets like bonds, which are also very low, but uh, there are potential dangers there. Yeah, a few brief words from Janet Yellen and uh, U.S. stocks tumbling on heavy volume. And as voters prepare to go to the polls in the U.K. general election, we'll look at the reasons behind the dramatic slide in global bond markets. Joining us for our markets discussion this morning is Haitung Securities' Andrew Sullivan. And after that, we'll have two guests from China, the Guangha School of Management's Gao Yan and Giles Chance from the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. Both of them join us to talk about the environment for business startups in China. Peter Lewis, our regular Thursday guest host, is here with us this morning. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Renita. So, Peter, UK voters look set to deliver a hung parliament in the general election. Do you think that'll happen? I think quite likely. Um, there's, there's always the potential for surprises. If there was going to be a surprise, I would say the party that may outperform will be the Conservatives. I think Labour is pretty well topped out, but there may be UKIP voters who want a referendum and realise that the only way they're going to get that is um, a referendum on Europe. That is, the only way they're going to get that is to vote Conservative. But the big winner in the election is going to be Scotland. So and why is that? There's 59 seats in Scotland. The Scottish Nationalists are probably going to win at least 50 of them, and there's a realistic chance they may win every single seat in Scotland. If that's the case, then they, it's going to be the SNP who will decide the next Prime Minister and the next government, and they will be the ones who will have the balance of power in terms of who they want to form a, a coalition with. And uh, is that going to mean a less united or a non-united United Kingdom? Well, if um, they're not going to form a coalition with the Conservatives, that's for sure. So we could be in the very strange situation where the Labour Party, which gets wiped out in its Scottish heartlands, loses to the Conservatives in England, has less seats, but yet goes and forms the government. Um, the Scottish Nationalists want another referendum on Scottish independence, and that could well be one of the uh, the demands for keeping uh, getting Ed Miliband into, into power. So, Peter, you know, uh, on the business front, on the economic side, you know, there are a couple of questions that have been raised uh, with a view to sort of what happens, you know, the outcome of the elections. One of them is the case for a Brexit, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Britain leaving the European Union. Um, and the other is the impact perhaps on monetary policy. Can you fill us in? Yeah, well, if the Conservatives win 
um, or are able to form a coalition. They have promised in 2017 a referendum um, on whether or not Britain should stay in the EU. That is going to cause a huge amount of uncertainty. It's going to cause a lot of volatility in the bond and stock markets. It will probably cause sterling to start falling on the foreign exchange markets. Um, and it may well mean that the Bank of England will have to consider very carefully its monetary policy um, in order to try and support the pound um, and maybe stop a, a sort of a deflationary um, effect taking place in the UK. So the, the problem is with, with a coalition government, and it may not even be a stable coalition government that lasts for very long, there is going to be a lot of business uncertainty, a lot of economic uncertainty going on in the UK afterwards. All right. Well, the latest poll from YouGov puts both the governing Conservative Party and the opposition Labour Party level on 34% level on 34% of the vote. And uh, the result of the election could likely impact key constitutional questions, you know, such as those that we've just talked about. The president of the Council of Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, provides his analysis. We know at best you're going to have a very divided Britain. You're going to have a coalition government, which is going to be which is going to be rickety, and it's going to be a distracted government. You're going to have real questions about whether the United Kingdom stays united. If the Tories win, if the Conservatives win, you're going to have in in 2017 the vote about Europe. This is going to be a Britain that's going to be looking inward. And from the United States' point of view, from a foreign mm-hmm. policy point of view, uh, we're not going to have a partner for the next couple of years. Britain is going to shrink in its role. The sell-off in global bonds continues. German bonds and U.S. Treasuries have now declined for eight consecutive days. The yield on the German 10-year bond, which was just seven basis points on April 20th, has shot up to 0.54%, a new 2015 high. U.K. gilts have broken above the 2% level and 10-year U.S. Treasuries traded at 2.22%, the highest level since early March. As yields rise, bond prices fall. KBW Chief Executive Officer Thomas McCord gives his reasons for the bond decline. I think quantitative easing causes these disruptions to happen. When you have uh, uh, a, an opinion that the government's going to head in one direction mm-hmm. with policy, I think you have a chance to get overly confident in a particular direction. Peter, do you agree is QE responsible for this latest bond market sell-off? Yes. Um, If you think over the last few years since the financial crisis, central banks around the world have pumped in more than $10 trillion of liquidity um, into the economy. Most of that has gone into the financial markets. Very little of that has trickled down to the real economy, particularly into um, stocks and bonds. And as I've argued many times on this program, that has caused huge distortions in the financial markets. So, for example, we have 25% of European bonds now have negative yields. Spanish bonds yield less than US treasuries. It, it's hard to argue that Spain is less of a risk than, uh, the, than the US. The Japanese bond market has, has ceased to function as a viable market. You know, JGB futures go days these days without trading. The only buyer left in the market is the Bank of Japan. So these distortions have to, at some point, um, start to unwind. And I think we're seeing the beginning, just the very beginning, of um, a normal process. The one thing that maybe is saving the bond markets right now is that because of all the regulatory changes and capital requirements, many banks can't sell their government bonds. They need to hold on to them in order to meet their, um, their Basel III capital adequacy requirements. But I think, you know, the, the, the fall in the bond markets has got for, uh, further to go. And when you say normalisation, what can we expect? 
Well, I mean, it's not, um, it's not realistic to have so much of the world's bond markets on negative yields. This is not how the global financial system is, is able to work. Um, you know, we need to have a positive real interest rate. Um, otherwise, you simply can't price most financial instruments off of a, of a negative rate. So we're starting to see maybe bonds sort of go back to some, some sort of more normalised level. All right. Well, uh, traders are also concerned about rising oil prices leading to inflation, another negative for bonds. Brent crude broke above $69 a barrel in New York trading before settling just uh, below $68 per barrel. And WTI, the U.S. oil benchmark, also hit a 2015 high above $62 a barrel. Oil, of course, as you know, has fallen to a five-year low near $45 in January, but it has now rebounded more than 50%. And the latest monthly survey from payroll processor ADP showed that U.S. companies added 169,000 jobs in April. This is compared with 189,000 jobs in the previous month, although economists were expecting an increase of 200,000 jobs. The official U.S. government jobs report is released tomorrow. Janet Yellen also unnerved investors when she said that at a conference in Washington, we could see a sharp jump in long-term rates. The U.S. dollar fell 1.3% against the euro to 1.13. The Dow Jones Industrial Average recovered from early losses to close down 86 points at 17,841. The S&P 500 fell 9 points to 2,030. And the Nasdaq closed 19 points lower at 4,919. Senior portfolio manager at Skybridge Capital, Troy Gajewski, is not concerned by the recent falls. We basically expect this bull market to continue with much more muted gains and much more volatility. And given all the corporate activity today and the fact that it's built on a very uh, solid foundation in terms of the large volume of accretive transactions that one can do, um, we think it's going to continue for at least 6 to 12 more months. And China's service sector uh, PMI, compiled by HSBC, rose from 52.3 in March to 52.9 in April, the fourth consecutive monthly rise. Despite this, the Shanghai Composite Index extended its decline into a second day, falling 1.6%. This followed a 4.1% decline the previous day. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index fell 114 points, or 0.4%, reversing morning gains. And in Australia... A second day of sell-offs in bank shares left the ASX 200 down 2.3%. Despite the slide in China markets, BNP Paribas Wealth Management uh, Chief Investment Strategist for Asia, Stefan Hofer, believes that China is on the right track. You know, you, you see um, that shift taking place in the Chinese economy. There's more value added in terms of the export mix. That's very important. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of competition uh, that is heating up across the region. Uh, smaller economies are trying to sort of grab market share from China, and China is responding to that by actually very successfully moving up the value chain. So this economy today is very different than it has, you know, was maybe two years ago or three years ago. Yeah. And that should also be reflected in, in market valuations. All right, let's bring in Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director of Sales Trading at Haitong Securities. And he's a regular contributor to Money for Nothing. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. Andrew, is there a macro theme that is linking the rally in oil, the falling dollar and rising bond yields? Well, I suppose it's it's the slow outworking of QE. As QE has distorted markets, they are will and over time return to the more normal practice. Uh, and obviously people are are factoring in the, the Fed 
possibly raising rates later this year, which will be the, a very small step, but the first step towards a more normal monetary policy. Now, presumably, the ECB will not be pleased to see a rising euro and also rising yields on European bonds, which could set back the recovery in Europe. How do you think the ECB is going to respond to this? Well, Draghi's always made it clear that he, he will do whatever is necessary to, to uh, support his policies. But it, it becomes increasingly difficult, and we're seeing that here you know, in, in Asia as well, where you know, China's looking at its own form of QE. Uh, Korea is warning Japan that it's looking at the yen uh, one balance. So the, it, it gets to the point where when we first entered the financial crisis, all these central banks were working together to save the global economy. But over time, you know, their own domestic concerns uh, outweigh their, their view of the global economy and they have to do what's best for their own countries. So, Andrew, six years down the line after the financial crisis, seven years, we, we've still got uh, many central banks either, you know, fully engaged in QE or, or considering starting QE. What, what's the verdict, do you think, on, on, on this? Do you think it's worked? Do you think it's done um, what the central banks hope? hoped it would do? I don't think it's done what the central banks had hoped it would do because, you know, we've seen the ECB uh, raising the rates that it holds deposits at to to, to discourage the banks from, you know, putting money with the ECB. They want it to get out into the economy. But, you know, it's free money for the banks, but the banks don't want to take the risk of actually passing that on to the main street borrowers. And at the same time, because the global economies have slowed down, the, the big businesses don't want to spend capex because they can't see demand for their products. So we're in a, still in a very strange predicament. And in many ways, businesses are, are quite flush with cash, aren't they? They don't really need the benefit of, of this type of uh, stimulus. Yes, I mean, they're, they're flush with cash, but a lot of that is because they're not investing in the long term for their businesses. Uh, and certainly, when Janet Yelling was talking about the markets yesterday, you have to take into account that most of the US companies' stock prices are going up, not because they're seeing, not because they're spending capex, because they're seeing demand, but because the policy of buying their own shares back is actually ramping the prices. Mm. And, and as interest rates rise, that, that uh, share buyback effect is going to come to an end. Well, it, it, it should come to an end. The unfortunate thing, as you say, that in, is in the short term and, and for an extended period as interest rates rise, they still have a lot of cash that they can do that. And in the US, you also have the added problem with a lot of these companies having cash overseas, which they are reluctant to repatriate because of the tax implications of doing that. So again, it gives them another reason or another another pool of liquidity to buy their own shares back with. Andrew, how do you think Asian markets are likely to respond to a weaker dollar and rising yields in the US and Europe? Well, the weaker dollar, certainly for the exporters, is, is going to be a concern. It, it makes their products more expensive. Uh, but, I mean, it, it's, it, it's getting back to the, the reality. The U.S. dollar has been you know, very strong for the last few years, uh, as the, the U.S. Has, was seen to be the, the global leader as far as coming out of recession quicker than everybody else, and the growth had started to come through. Uh, but for, for Asian exporters, though, that was helpful because it made their products much more competitive. That will change over time. But I think the other thing, is, as the guy from BMP was saying, China is moving up the value chain. So before it was relying on cheap exports. Uh, going forward, it's going to be relying more on uh, better technical competence, things further up the food chain, things that are, are more technically advanced than, than just T-shirts were in the past. Yeah, there was an interesting clip uh, from St- Stefan Hofer at BNP Paribas. Um, but on the flip side, uh, Arthur Kwong, who's also from BNP Paribas, is sounding alarm. Uh, he's from BNP Paribas Investment Partners, and they have actually sold Chinese shares listed in Hong Kong, 
One, because they're worried about ballooning mainland margin debt. And two, because uh, they're worried about the growing mismatch between equity prices and the deteriorating economy. What do you think? Well, I think one of the, you know, certainly the the recent rally in China has been very much driven by retail money, and a lot of that is margin financed. Uh, And to a large extent, that that rally will continue for as long as brokerages can afford to margin finance it. And we've certainly seen a number of the large Chinese brokers taking the opportunity of raising cash. Most of that cash will be used for uh, margin financing, which is going to keep the liquidity there. As far as the the debt burden in China, yes, there is a debt burden. But again, the rising uh, stock markets is helping take some of the pressure of that off because we're going to see inflation coming through uh, as a result of that, and that's going to help them with that. But there is still certainly a, a concern there. But on the flip side... It's not like China is bankrupt and has no money in order for them to cope with that. The central bank has still got uh, a number of reserves and it's still got a number of uh, other levers that it can pull to try and alleviate that. You know, recently we've seen them looking at uh, trying to sponsor local government bonds to try and get the local government debt situation more under control. I think at the end of the day, it's a developing situation and it's one that's going to continue to develop. And, and do you think the authorities such as the PBOC are, are happy with uh, particularly the speed of the market advance and, and where it's gone, or, or are they concerned, do you think? I think at this stage they're probably reasonably happy. I think basically you know, this was a stock market that had underperformed for five years, uh, and they've done very similar to what Taiwan did about ten years ago. You get the government pension funds, etc., to start investing in the market. That pushes the markets up slowly. Uh, then the retail... Uh, hordes come in following that up that pushes it up faster um, and then it's, but it's more controllable it's it's alleviated the shadow banking problem because you know people it's no longer worth them putting the money with the shadow banks it's in the stock market at least in the stock market the government can see where the money is uh, and, and can have a little bit more control over it but andrew i mean isn't it true that when markets go nuts as they have in china then everything else gets swept under the rug i mean chinese investors have been borrowing record amounts to plow into equities um and bulls say this is the right thing to do but but is it what about fundamentals well, yes, that's certainly true. I mean, I don't think many of the people that are opening, you know, we're reading, you know, people are judging this market by the number of accounts that are opened almost on a daily basis in China, um, which is never a good sign. But it's exactly what we saw seven years ago before the Chinese market crashed last time. I think, you know, at the end of the day, it should be balanced. That's something, you know, investors have to do due diligence on the companies that they're investing in or should do. They should have a balanced portfolio uh, and, and they should never, you know, invest more money in the stock market than they're happy to lose. So, Andrew, one Chinese stock that has been falling sharply recently is an, an attracting attention is Alibaba, which is down almost 25% from its highs. What, what's the reason for the slide there since the IPO? Well, I think it, it was a market... It's like most things. It, it was a market-dominating stock. Uh, it had most of the control. And, and it was, in, in many respects, when you see a company in any sector that has done that well, it attracts more people in... To, to provide competition, to undercut it, uh, to maybe provide niche services that Alibaba doesn't do. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the situation here. It's, a, it's effectively, although it's a Chinese company, it, it's a global competitor and there are other people out there and we've seen that certainly with the people like Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, all these tech 
uh, these uh, media stocks that are on the internet plays are all coming under more pressure as time goes forward. All right, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director of Sales Trading at Haitung uh, International Securities. Let's uh, take a quick look at the numbers now. The Nikkei is down six-tenths of a percent to 19,402. Australia's uh, ASX 200 also down seven-tenths of a percent to 5,649. And Seoul's cost be down four-tenth of a percent to 2,096. We'll be back to talk more about the entrepreneurial spirit of mainland China. That's right after this. The Electoral Affairs Commission has published the proposed guidelines on election-related activities in respect of the District Council election for public consultation. You can send a written submission by June 3rd or share your views at a public forum on May 19th. The proposed guidelines are available at the Commission's website, www.eac.gov.hk, the Registration and Electoral Office, and the Public Inquiry Service Centers of District Offices. For inquiries, please call 2891-1001. And the time is now uh, 8.23 a.m., and we've got two guests on the line from China, Giles Chance from the Tuck School of Business at uh, Dartmouth <laughs> He is a visiting professor there, and he's been involved with the Peking University's Guangha School of Management since 1998. And with him is Gao Yan, who is a professor at the Guangha School of Management at Peking University. He teaches a course on entrepreneurship there and is the director of the Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Uh, this is Giles, our loudspeaker. I'm afraid that technically we failed this morning. Our loudspeaker's uh, not working properly, so... We're sharing one phone. Oh, goodness. Uh, so it's Giles speaking, okay. and next to me is Guy Young. <laughs> so, Renita, if you could just uh, preface your question with whoever you'd like to speak to. Absolutely. And then we have to pass the phone back to the forward. Sorry about that. All right. Let, let's speak. Uh, let, let's uh, uh, ask Gao Yan first. Um, uh, Yan, the, the entrepreneurial uh, spirit of the Chinese is certainly evident from the thousands that we've seen set up business on platforms like Alibaba. Can you bring us up to date with what you see among your students? Among our students, uh, yes, I think that the uh, uh, entrepreneurship and the innovation now is a is a big, uh, big hot uh, topic. Not only from the very top central government level to our school level. Uh, at our school, uh, we see more and more students are uh, interested and and involved in entrepreneurial related uh, activities. Uh, we. Uh, as a center for entrepreneurship and innovation, we we offer free uh, services to our students and community. One, we design a lot of coursework for them. Secondly, we we, we do a lot of knowledge sharing. Uh, we hold uh, a, a set of uh, lectures uh, inviting venture capitalists, uh, successful entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurs uh, to share their experience. Thirdly, we, we, our school, we also spend some money to build an incubator mm. for our students and alumni. Giles, to, yes. Giles, if I could ask you, uh, you mentioned recently that a group of Chinese students took your course at Dartmouth, and uh, they did so because they were interested in understanding how business is done in China. But then these are Chinese students. Do, do they not pick up this know-how at home? Well... <laughs> Apparently not. I guess that uh, they feel 
they've thoroughly been worked for a big company. They would have under, uh, graduated from a good university in China. Then they probably worked for a big company. They may even have gone to straight to the U.S. to uh, to do a master's before doing an MBA, or they may have even done an undergrad. So, uh, but I think generally speaking, um, uh, you know, people who come out of uh, undergrad worked for. PetroChina for three or four years may feel they don't understand all they need to know about business and they need to do a course on it. That, that, that's my take on, on that particular issue. So, Giles, in, in order to encourage entrepreneurship and, and innovation in, in business, you really need people to be able to uh, to think outside of the box, come up with new ideas, be free uh-huh. to um, sort of, you know, try new things. But at the same time, you've almost got a bit of a clampdown going on at the moment in, in, in universities in China about what uh-huh. people can say and, and think and do, which sort of cuts against, doesn't it, trying to be more innovative and entrepreneurial? I think it's a very good point, and I, I, I'll pass it uh, over to Guyana in a moment, but uh, basically the question really is uh, you need to be entre- entrepreneurial, but at the same time, uh, uh, Chinese culture at the moment is quite restrictive, uh, and there's a conflict there. And I, I, would, I would certainly agree with that. I think it's uh, something that civil society, uh, the media, have to open up, loosen up a bit. Uh, I hope that the current clampdown is part of the uh, sort of anti-corruption drive, an attempt to try and normalise Chinese society in certain ways, and it'll uh, it'll change in the not too distant future because I think that China needs to become a freer, a freer thinking and freer speaking society in order for innovation to succeed. And I'm interested to see what Gaiyan has to say about that. Hi, Renita. Yeah, I agree that the cultural element is very important. Uh, we have been studying other uh, innovative countries like U- USA, like Israel we do find that uh, there's certain cultural elements uh, contribute to their success. In China, as uh, Zhao has mentioned, we have some problems in terms of free thinking, free speech, or free uh, or, or tolerance to uh, failure. All this we need to improve, I think. Also, uh, I think that most of uh, the successful countries, they do share some very high level, I think, or common value uh, uh, system uh, here in China. I think the value system now is a, is a chaos uh, kind of. Uh, uh, here people uh, uh, mostly uh, only have this uh, getting rich mentality. Uh, is that enough for, for bringing up uh, uh, the innovation we need? Uh, this is a question mark to me. All right. Thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning. That is Gao Yan. He is a professor at the Guanghua School of Management and Giles Chance, a visiting professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth in the USA. Well, here we are almost at the end of the show. Let's take a quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is uh, now down eight-tenth of a percent to 19,377. Australia's ASX 200 is down one one percent to five thousand six hundred and twenty eight and Sol's Cosby also down six tenth of a percent to two thousand and ninety one gold currently stands at one thousand one hundred and ninety dollars per ounce and Brent crude oil at sixty seven dollars and thirty cents so Peter we've talked uh, about uh, the potential hung parliament in the UK elections uh, what else should we have our eye on later today 
Well, I can give you two numbers to think about for tomorrow, just like uh, Sesame Streets. The first one is 323. That's the number of seats that the winning party needs to get uh, in the UK elections to have a majority. The second number is 200,000. That's the, uh, the average forecast of economists for tomorrow's US job numbers. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so uh, it's all in the twos. Peter, thank you uh, for joining us uh, this morning and every Thursday morning. That is Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting, and I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora, wrapping up for this morning's Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly cloudy with a few showers at first and sunny intervals during the day. The temperature right now is 28 degrees Celsius, and the relative humidity is 94%. Time for the half-hour news with Samantha Butler. British politicians have been targeting undecided voters on the final day of campaigning for the general election. Opinion polls suggest no party will win an overall majority. Here's the BBC's Rob Watson. The end of one of Britain's longest and most hard-fought election campaigns is now in sight. In his final appeal to the voters, David Cameron said Britain was stronger than it was five years ago, but there was more work to do. While Labour's Ed Miliband insisted he was the best man to lead the country. But the rise of the Scottish National Party and the defection of Conservative and Labour voters to what used to be considered fringe parties, such as UKIP and the Greens, means neither Mr Cameron nor Mr Miliband is likely to win outright. 25-year-old Australian man will face a mainland court today charged with trying to export 30 kilograms of crystal methamphetamine to Australia. Radio Australia's Hui Fante reports. The New Zealand-born Peter Gardner was about to make his way to Sydney when he was arrested at an airport in the southern Chinese city of Guangzhou.